Welcome to the Director's Chair, a Lowy Institute podcast. My name is Michael Forleylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I sit down with political leaders, policymakers and commentators in order to understand what's happening in the world. I'm delighted that my guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is one of the leading scholars of contemporary US foreign policy, Dr. Thomas Wright. Tom is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., as well as a non-resident fellow at the Lowy Institute. Tom and I first met about 12 years ago when I was at Brookings and he was at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. And since then, I've been enormously impressed by the ambition and range of his analysis. Tom has made himself into one of the world's leading Trumpologists. No one has a better grasp of President Trump's worldview and his foreign policies than he does. Tom's writing appears everywhere from foreign affairs to the Atlantic. Earlier this month, Tom wrote a terrific Lowy Institute analysis entitled The Point of No Return, The 2020 Election and the Crisis of American Foreign Policy. I'm delighted he's agreed to speak with me today on the director's chair. Welcome, Tom Wright. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be with you. Tom, before we get into the election, let me ask about your origin story. You were born in Dublin, part of a big Catholic family, I believe. Tell us about your childhood and your upbringing and how you became interested in America and US foreign policy. Yeah, I grew up in Ireland. I left when I was 25. So, you know, I went to school there, went to college there, come from a, a family of five and the eldest have three brothers and a sister. My mom is a nurse. My my dad ran, runs a small business uh, that does sort of plastic and paper packaging. Uh, so yeah, we we had a you know a very sort of normal and happy uh, upbringing. Lots of discussion around the dinner table on on politics and current affairs, which maybe is where some of my interest uh, you know comes from. But I've always been really interested in history and in politics and studied that for undergrad in, in college at, uh, at University College Dublin and, uh, you know, was really just fascinated by it. Um, so, yeah, when I, you know, when I was in um, college, I think I started specializing in that and then went to do a master's in Cambridge in international affairs, which was really the, the first time I really sort of engaged in way with a lot of these subjects. All right. And then after that, you moved to Washington to undertake a PhD at Georgetown. And I think that was four weeks before the attacks of 9-11. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. So August 01. Um, so obviously I had no idea what was what was coming next. That must have focused the mind. Yeah. You know, it was, it was a very unusual time. I mean, I guess, you know, if, if you sort of are interested in those issues, you sort of think naturally that DC is sort of the center of the world, but it's quite another thing to see that sort of unfold right in front of you just shortly after you arrive, you know, and it was, I think, a very unusual time in Washington and in the US. I mean, this is an unusual time too. And that was unusual in a different way because no one quite knew what was coming next. And just as with COVID, there was a sense that it was the end of an era and the beginning of something sort of stranger and, and, and darker or more difficult. And of course, it was a very interesting time to be studying sort of international security and international relations. And, you know, I think history has, has gone in, you know, a very different direction than if 9-11 had never happened. I mean, at the time, there was a bit of a debate about how significant this really was. And, you know, obviously resulted in the Iraq war and conflicts mm. that went on until the present or go on till the present um, day. 
So you stayed in the United States, you moved into the think tank world in Chicago and then in Washington, as I said. Let me ask you about your perceptions of being an immigrant in the US foreign policy community. In August, I spoke to your friend and colleague, Fiona Hill from Brookings, and another immigrant to the US who's become an influential policymaker in Washington. And Fiona told me that one of the reasons she emigrated to the US was because as a working class woman with a strong county Durham accent, she felt she would have greater professional opportunities in America. So what about you? You moved to America to do your PhD, but when did you decide to make it permanent? Uh, What have been your experiences as an immigrant within the foreign policy community? Yeah, I I mean, I guess the answer to that question is probably when I decided to move over, I mean, that was sort of a choice because PhDs, as you know, in the US can go on for six or seven years. Mine took six. And so to do that when you're 25 is a fair chunk of, of time. And uh, I had also considered you know, being a lawyer and going to work in an investment bank. So it was sort of a, a fork in the road moment. But my decision really came down to the fact that um, I just knew that I'd ultimately regret it if I didn't do it. And I thought that I liked the subject enough, the subject matter enough that I thought that even if I ended up back in Dublin doing exactly the same thing I did before I left, that I would still be you know, grateful and appreciative of the experience and hopefully it would lead to something else. But you know, I was willing to just take it as an experience in its own terms. Um, but I was very fortunate after I started you know, to work with a series of people who were excellent academics, but also had a very strong interest in policy and in grand strategy. So I worked very closely with John Eikenberry, who's my advisor um, from basically just after I arrived in, in Georgetown and with others, uh, Charlie Kupchin and others who you would know who write a lot on international order and US strategy. And I think that basically got me interested in that nexus between some of those big sort of IR ideas and then the sort of foreign policy side. So I was pretty sure I wanted to continue to do that because I was, if anyone would have me, and I was sort of fortunate after Georgetown to do some postdoctoral, pre-doctoral fellowships and then ended up in Chicago working at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and lecturing at the Harris School at the University of Chicago. And that sort of was my first, you know, start, I guess, out of academia and from there, I think I, I, you know, wanted to move back to Washington because that's where a lot of this happens. And I was fortunate that a position opened up at Brookings. Now, let, let me ask you how how receptive you found the Washington foreign policy community to you as an immigrant, because it does occur to me that the blob, as Obama's aide Ben Rhodes once referred to this community, he has actually been pretty receptive over the years to newcomers. If you think of Brzezinski and Owen Harris and Kissinger and Martin Indyk and Fiona Hill and Samantha Power and, and many others, it, it does seem that there, that there are opportunities for immigrants to speak up and become significant policymakers. Has that been your experience? Do you find your Irish brogue in any way a drag on your influence or have you found that people are prepared to listen to what you have to say? Yeah, no, I think it's a very, you make a very astute point. I think it's a very open system, I think. And, and that's for a few reasons. Part of it's cultural. Uh, as you say, there's a long sort of history of people who come from someplace else. Initially, even a disproportionate number who just happened to sort of be quite interested in the rest of the world. And, and you mentioned, you know, Brzezinski, 
Kissinger and many and many others from there um, on. And but I think also part of it is the unique uh, structure of the U.S. system, whereby there's no permanent civil service at the most senior levels. I mean, there is a permanent civil service, but it basically stops at the deputy assistant secretary level with some exceptions. And so the senior roles are all politically appointed. And because of that, we have this sort of big think tank sector and earlier on an academic sector that fed into policy, not as much anymore on the academic side. And that, I think, created a lot of opportunities that might be harder uh, to come by in somewhere like the UK, you know, where uh, you basically join the Foreign Commonwealth Office, you know, out of undergrad, and it's sort of much harder to, to join it when you're 30, let alone when you're 40 or, or, or 50. And, but I think there is a cultural part. I've always been struck by a observation that Fried Zakaria made, where he said that he was a great admirer of the UK and it was a it was a society one could admire, but not quite penetrate or be assimilated into. And what he was trying to say, I think, was that you know, the the role he's played it would have been hard for him to play that role there, and that's why he sort of you know made made his home here in the U.S. Probably. And, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, it is a fairly unique system for better and worse, and I've been a big beneficiary of it. Um, I mean, I've been very fortunate all along uh, to have people uh, well before I became a, a naturalized and a, and a citizen to, to uh, you know, to trust me with different projects or to bring me in as a part of the discussion. I will say there's one small twist, though, which I've sort of found that generally the precondition for, you know, to be sort of assimilated into it, I guess, is to sort of to, to be willing to see things from the U.S. point of view. Right. So all the people. You mentioned, you know, became Americans and then argued from the sort of position of trying to figure out what the U.S. national interest was. So I think that's probably the the threshold, you know. And for some people, you know, that may be more difficult than for others. You know, there's lots of people in the foreign policy debate in Washington who will offer the perspective of the country from which they came and say, well, here's, you know, a, you know, a perspective of of whatever country you want to choose. And I think they can be a part of it too. Um, but then it's 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 not quite the same in terms of being integrated, say, into the policy making process like Fiona was or Martin was or or, or others, all of whom did really stellar work uh, on behalf of the country in, in in very key positions. All right, let's come to the topic of the November presidential election. I mentioned earlier your Lowy Institute analysis on foreign policy and the 2020 election. Thank you and congratulations again on a really terrific paper. Let me first of all ask you about President Trump's worldview and then come to Vice President Biden. So first of all, on Donald Trump, you described four phases in his first term foreign policy. Can you set those out for us very briefly? So I think there's a narrative arc, uh, and basically Trump is elected, and he comes in with strong visceral instincts about the world, about alliances, international trade, you know, authoritarianism versus democracy. But he finds that nobody else really shares those views amongst his advisors. Certainly, no one is qualified for high office. So he turns to former generals and business leaders thinking that they will do his bidding, but they don't, right? They're constrained. They sort of work against him in some ways. And from the summer of 17, he becomes deeply frustrated and he begins to push them out. And then the, the 
the first phase is that axis of adults, the attempt to try to constrain him. He starts pushing them out around July or August of 17, and it culminates with, you know, uh, Tillerson being fired and McMaster being fired in 2018, Pompeo and Bolton and others coming in. And then Trump really realizes he's the president. You know, he can say what he wants. It's the old joke about Abraham Lincoln, you know, calling a vote in cabinet where it's sort of 15 against and one in favor. And he says the eyes have it because he's in favor. You know, Trump realizes that at some point and does all of these things, moves the embassy to Jerusalem, pulls out of the JCPOA, does things that his initial team opposed. And then he sort of enjoys himself, but it's a it's a crazy ride, you know, in which policy is really about indulging his whims and his preferences. And then he bumps up against the third phase. That's the phase of action. The third phase are the contradictions. Um, and I think that really starts with the decision in 2019 to not strike Iran after their attack in the Saudi oil facility, where he's having this moment where he goes back and forth. But they really begin to bump up against the problems that come from just making decisions on the fly with no strategy. And then we have the COVID, the, the reckoning moment. But the consistent theme throughout is him getting rid of any constraints and finding a team that is increasingly sycophantic or ultra loyal. And the start of the premise of the paper for Lowy is really that for Trump, if he wins a second term, we can expect that it will be all about him, right? He will believe that it's a complete and utter vindication that only he knows what the American people need and want that everybody else has to sort of dance to that tune. And uh, I think that's quite sort of frightening when you consider, you know, exactly what he's like. Um, but I would expect people like Rick Grinnell, Kushner, maybe in a formal position, some cable news commentators like Doug McGregor or Anthony Tata to be in sort of key positions. So you don't think that uh, a second Trump term would be a more moderate version of the first Trump term in the way that George W. Bush's second term was more moderate than his first. You think it would be the opposite. It would be Trump unleashed. Yeah, there's very little evidence for the benign explanation, except that, you know, he's had some experience now, but I I'm constantly struck with their loyalty tests. You know, he he's made it very clear he's going to fire Mark Esper if he wins re-election. And Mark Esper's crime was to oppose publicly Trump invoking the Insurrection Act to use troops against American protesters after the events of St. John's Church in the summer. That probably was something that saved Trump from himself, from making a horrific error. Mm -hmm. But it won't save Esper. It won't save Esper. And, and that's just one example. There's many others. Um, I had a senior conservative think tank expert tell me once that several of his colleagues have not been hired by the White House because the personnel office had gone through their Twitter feed and noted any time they liked a tweet that was deemed critical of Trump, not even tweeted. <laughs> and so the team that finds it hard to shoot straight on so many things are sort of ninjas when it comes to, you know, finding out the, the, the litmus test for loyalty. And, and I think that will continue for sure because his victory this time would be as or more unlikely as the first time. So it will feed into this sort of hubris if it, if it happens. Now, you say in your paper that a second Trump term would, and I quote, most likely mark the formal end of the post-Second World War and post-Cold War international order. That's a big claim, Tom. Justify it for us. 
Yeah, I think that after the election in 2016, you know, people were surprised. Um, Trump was surprised, of course, himself. And but they didn't know if this was a temporary aberration or you know a blip on the one hand or a permanent change on the other. And there was no answers to that question possible until next week. Right? There was that was probably the number one question that analysts had and diplomats had the world over. And there was evidence on both sides, but it will be decided next week. And I think if he is reelected, the only conclusion to draw really will be that the American people want this new direction and that they are willing to trust the foreign policy and domestic policy of the country to him and with everything they know about him. And uh, my, my sense from talking to diplomats and to other officials from around the world is that they will basically conclude at that point that the, the verdict is in and the U.S., whether or not it leaves immediately or not, key alliances, that you have to prepare for that eventuality and they will begin to hedge and adversaries will begin to recalculate and see what they can get away with. And Trump may well become more radical on key policy positions, particularly alliances. So, uh, yes, I mean, it's impossible to know for sure, but I can't think of another you know, we've already had policy moves that have hinted in that direction, like the absence of leadership on COVID. Uh, this, I think, will be a, a very clear signal and that the world has fundamentally changed. And, you know, you have read your stuff on this. You've written very eloquently about it, the America you knew has changed. And I think a lot of people that spoke for a lot of people around the world who have the same reaction, who are watching closely, not just out of interest with the horse race, but also to see what happens to this country that many of them look to as a beacon. All right, let's move to the Biden side of the ledger. In this campaign, there hasn't been too much scrutiny, I would say, of, of, of Vice President Biden's foreign policies. He's not Donald Trump, and for many analysts and for many Americans, that's enough. Can you describe just in a few sentences what Biden's worldview is? Yeah, I think Biden is a believer in the romantic case for US leadership in the international order. You know, he believes in alliances, he believes in relationships, he believes in a values-based foreign policy. He's been that way for decades. Uh, I think you, you know, his interest in his service on, as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, his frequent visits to conflict zones, all demonstrate that, I think. He is probably, with the exception of George H.W. Bush, probably the most naturally inclined internationalist president since Eisenhower. You know, most U.S. presidents, as you, you know, know from, from all your work as a historian, I mean, most presidents are elected with a domestic background and they may turn into internationalists, but they, they're sort of more inwardly focused. Biden is not like that. So I think that's his overall worldview. But the point of the paper really was that that doesn't tell us an awful lot about what is policy would be like, because that can encompass a lot of different choices, right? It's clearly different to Trump, but we don't know how it's different to about where Obama ended up or where Bill Clinton was or Hillary Clinton was. And so that's the, the paper is trying to unpack some of those internal discussions. But I think, you know, his overall view of Democratic allies in particular, I think is pretty clear. You say in your paper that the answer to this question, how would a Biden presidency, a Biden foreign policy differ from Obama's foreign policy, 
depends on the outcome of a debate within the Democratic Party between a group you call the restorationists who want to continue or update President Obama's foreign policy versus reformers who question the assumptions underpinning Obama's worldview and favour significant changes to his foreign policy. So tell us a bit about that debate between the restorationists and the reformers and who you think would win it. Yeah. So I sort of started on this line of thought after sort of doing a bit of work on progressive foreign policy during the primary when we were all trying to figure out what Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders would think. And it sort of struck me that there was another debate going on, which was really between centrists. They were writing pieces that people were reading, but I think not necessarily reading collectively as a sign of a, of a big debate. And basically the debate is um, between one group that I think would continue the worldview as set out by President Obama, updated for events. So they definitely recognize the importance of COVID and you know of Russian interference and all of these issues. Uh, so they're not just going back to the way things were, but they have the same sort of sensibilities, which is maybe a little bit of a, 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 a status quo bias, I would say, in the global economy uh, on China. They want to compete with China, but they tend to be nervous about going too far and would want a healthy sort of balanced bilateral relationship to, to counteract the sort of the, the uh, competitive part. Um, probably want to focus more on transnational issues uh, on the Middle East, you know, work in the JCPOA, but fulfill the traditional role um, be slightly worried about values turning into an ideological crusade, but wanting to work on democracy and human rights. Um, so they, I think, that that's sort of the restorationist group. There'll be some continuity there. And I, I don't mean these labels pejoratively. I think I'd love a suggestion for a description other than restorationist because it sounds backward looking. But it's really just to say um, that that sort of Obama sort of view, I think, is one part of it. And then the second group, are those people, including former officials, who are willing to question key assumptions or orthodoxies from the Obama era and say that they have to change? The way I would sort of define this is if if you look at a speech or a um, an article by some uh, foreign policy official, and if the content of that would be recognizable as consistent with what some official said in 2016, um, then that is more restorationist. If it's completely at odds with something that was said in 2016, then it's probably a reformist. And I outline in the paper several areas, particularly China policy, uh, where we've seen, you know, Kirk Campbell and Eli Ratner wrote the initial piece saying that successive administrations had gotten China wrong and some of the key assumptions sort of argued for a more competitive approach. And then Jake Sullivan wrote a piece with, with Kurt, um, you know, developing that a little bit. Others have weighed in um, as well. So China's one area. I think the global economy is another area where you have uh, some people who would push more in, a, in, a, in correcting globalization, building in an agenda of resilience and, and maybe working on, on, on some key issues to, to more regulate uh, the open global economy. So there's, there's several different areas, I think, uh, where this plays out. And I think that this difference is very amicable. I don't think either side sees themselves even as a group necessarily, and they certainly don't see themselves as enemies. And it's substantive. But I do think it will be a, it, the defining feature of at least the first year. I don't think it will be resolved in the transition. 
I think the question will be next year, not how is Biden different to Trump? It's obvious how he's different to Trump. The question will be, is and how is he different to Obama? And uh, do we sort of have real alterations in US foreign policy? Let's dig down into this division on China because this is uh, probably the most important um, question for the Biden administration. What would what do you think would be the settling point for the administration on China? It depends on uh, who triumphs in the in in the Hunger Games, the the competition for positions within the administration, who comes out on top. Personality matters. We know that in in US foreign policy making. But I mean, it does seem from a distance that all the momentum has been to the right on China and Washington towards a much more hawkish competitive position. Would President Biden emphasize competition or cooperation with China, do you think? How tough would he be on China policy? I think he'll weigh in on the more competitive side. And I think that they will have a sort of tough on China policy. I think there'll be some continuity but I wouldn't rule out it being a contested point. For instance, imagine if Beijing makes an overture in January or February to have a major joint initiative on the pandemic and on COP26, the climate change conference, sort of an olive branch to Washington. That that would be potentially impactful in, in terms of influencing the debate. I could imagine, easily imagine some people saying this has to be the priority. On the other hand, There'll be those who say, well, look, the prospects of cooperation still are pretty limited and we need to focus on the allies and, and on building this sort of situation of strength to deal with China collectively. So there are things that Beijing might do that might influence it. But I, I think that overall, I think things are headed in the direction of a more competitive approach. I would just make one other point that the White House, the Trump White House has been quite, I think, strategic about how they want to shape Biden's choices next year. So they have tried to lock in as many of the new restrictions in China as possible. So Biden is faced with the choice of reversing them or continuing them instead of lining them up where he can choose to implement them or just ignore them. And it's harder, particularly with Congress, uh, the way it is on China policy, it will be much harder for Biden to proactively reverse each of them. So I think they've been quite clever from their point of view in terms of locking in their position. So I think there will be a status quo bias next year in terms of the continuity with Trump, that there'll be selective rolling back of certain restrictions, maybe on education or other areas that are seen as particularly egregious. But on, on most of them, I think they'll probably and stay in place as that debate sort of occurs within the administration. All right. What about a Biden administration's policy on global economics and trade? Because if the Democratic Party has moved to the right on China, a lot of it has moved to the left on economic issues, and Biden would have to accommodate a progressive wing within his own party, which is more ambitious on on riding the scales economically. So where would a Biden administration end up on trade policy? And do you think, for example, you could see a Biden administration seeking to rejoin the TPP or is that debate over? Yeah, I think the trade policy question is really interesting and, and it, it doesn't divide neatly in terms of free trade and protectionists, right? I think it's... it's uh, it's a bit different to that. So I think on the one hand, you have those who would say, sign up to TPP and negotiate TTIP with the Europeans. 
On the other hand, you'd have those who say, look, these agreements are mainly about aligning regulations in key sectors that tend to produce a relatively small GDP bump, but it's a huge political lift in all parties, all countries to pass it. And these aren't things that really aggravate people about the global economy, right? People are aggravated about the global economy, but it's not the fact that agricultural regulations are not fully aligned or financial services are not fully aligned. They're worried about the fact that some companies don't pay tax anywhere. They're worried about data issues and cyber issues. They're worried about China having unfair advantage in terms of state-owned enterprises. And so the progressives and the, the reformers on the center side would say, why are we spending all our time you know, working through the trade representatives to align regulations, why don't we spend that political capital on doing a more focused deal, a more ambitious deal on the international tax regime, you know, on data and actually getting free societies all lined up together? And so their argument would be that they're actually pretty ambitious and that, you know, you in terms of global economic cooperation, but on a different set of issues and that those are the issues we need to make progress on if we're to get buy-in from the public into the international economic order, uh, which is has been hemorrhaging ever since the financial crisis, and I'm somewhat, I'm pretty sympathetic to that view myself. I think, I think it's, you know, when I see, I instinctively supported TTIP when it was launched, and then when I read sort of the the deal with the EU, and when I read the details of it, the projections, the projected GDP bump was so tiny; it was like one percent you know, increase or something like that, very small, compared to the, the, the real intense opposition I was going to encounter and the opportunity cost of all these other issues. I think that's a debate that's worth having. Now, it would need to, you need to be assured that there will be progress in other things and you weren't going to get into a protectionist tit for tat about tariffs or anything like that. But I think one of the things Biden will try to do is to say to other free countries, democratic countries, what do we need to do together to make sure that the global economy works for our middle classes? All right, let me focus in on what's at stake for Australia in the election. US-Australia relations have been up and down under the Trump administration, as you know, but in general, we've fared better than most other allies. Partly that's because we haven't asked for much, partly because we're seen as pulling our weight on defence, partly because of a good relationship between President Trump and Prime Minister Morrison. What would a second-term Trump administration mean for Australia, do you think? Yeah, I think that um, Australia's probably done better than almost any other democratic country, the possible exception of Israel in terms of working with Trump. And, you know, after the initial sort of difficult phone call between then Prime Minister Turnbull and, and Trump, I think things really turned around. And I think you pointed, Michael, to many of the, the reasons for that. You know, also there's no trade deficit with Australia. And so, you know, that's something that President Trump gets particularly vexed about. And I think Morrison and Trump have a decent relationship. So I, I don't think that Canberra is particularly concerned in terms of the bilateral relationship if Trump is reelected compared to other countries. But there's one big exception to that, which is it assumes that Trump will not become radicalized on the alliances and it assumes continuity on China policy. It's very possible that Trump, you know, if a bunch of the officials leave who've been tough on China and many have already left, um, that he could easily pivot back to the idea that this is all about trade 
after the election where he, when he no longer needs China as a scapegoat on COVID, he could just uh, go back to having a, a great relationship with Xi Jinping. And, and there might, he might pull out of the US-South Korea alliance. He could have a totally different relationship with Japan now that Shinzo Abe has left and uh, retired. So I think there is a larger strategic risk for Australia that transcends the good bilateral relationship that Canberra has with Washington. All right. What about a Biden victory? Lowy Institute polling reveals that nearly three quarters of Australians would prefer Joe Biden to be the next president, but his election could pose some challenges for Canberra on issues including China, but also climate change and energy. How would you sum up the consequences for Australia of a Biden victory? I think for the reason I just mentioned about Trump, you know, that there's a big strategic uncertainty. I think Biden would uh, be much better for Australia because there's strategic certainty and assurance in terms of continuing U.S. role. Biden is someone, I think, who has a a great affinity for Australia. He's visited there uh, at least several times. Uh, I think he really believes in the alliance. He really understands the contribution that Australia has made and the close links between the two countries. I think on on the China issue, I think he would probably define competition in a way that would allow more space for Asian countries to have an economic relationship with China that is sort of healthy and responsible and sensible in a way that Trump is probably narrowing that space significantly. And then I think on the values piece, which is quite important uh, to Australians uh, as well, that he would reinvigorate that idea of democracies working more closely together, and he'll try to bring together democracies in the Asia Pacific with democracies in Europe and elsewhere. And I think he would support, as you and I wrote last year about Australia joining the G7, I think he would support that. I think you'll see a G7 plus. So I think Australia will be a key part of the um, of his global strategy. Uh, so I think it will be it will be good news. I think for the alliance. All right. Finally, Tom, I'm going to put you on the spot. Which half of your paper is going to be relevant after the 3rd of November, do you think? The Trump half or the Biden half? Who do you think is going to win? Uh, Honestly, I think Biden will win by a distance. Uh, I think we um, we are all, I touch wood while I'm saying that because I think no one wants to say it because we're all scarred, have PTSD from 2016. And we're wrong about that. But I don't think this year is that year. And I think the, the polls have been remarkably stable. The swing states do, uh, polls have been favorable for Biden. I think the one thing Trump needed to do to turn things around, he has not been able to do, which is to basically apologize for his COVID response and to try to reset things. He's had multiple opportunities to do that, but he refused to take them. So I think the cake is pretty much baked at this point. I, I think it will be a fairly sort of significant win for Biden. I, I'm going out on a limb because I know that's what you want me to do because I could give the same answer that, you know, it depends on turnout and we'll see. But I, having weighed all of that up, if I had to put my own money on an outcome, if I was forced to, I think I would, I would put it on that. 
All right, Tom, thank you for coming out on the limb for me. Thank you for describing today your journey from Dublin to Washington, for giving us a guided tour of the worldviews of Donald Trump and Joe Biden and the implications for Australia and the world of the election that will take place on the 3rd of November. Let me encourage listeners who've been interested in this discussion to have a look at Tom's terrific Lowy Institute analysis, The Point of No Return. Enjoy election night. Tom. And in the meantime, thank you for being my guest on the director's chair. Michael, thank you so much. So really enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to the director's chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute hosted by me, Michael Fullylove, with production assistance from Madeline Neist. Thanks for listening and please tune in to the next episode of the director's chair.